We're looking at the adventure of prayer. I got rid of my jacket. You can get rid of yours. Uh, you can get rid of your tie if you want to. Oh, some of you don't know what that is. That's okay, though. That's a good thing. I asked someone, uh, uh, someone asked me the other day, what should I wear to come to church? And I said, clothes. We're very specific about that. But other than that, it's, it's great. We're just so glad that you're here today. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 17. The adventure of prayer. We're going to continue with our adventure in prayer. Today we're talking about praying like Jesus. Praying like Jesus. You know, we can learn a lot from prayers, right? Any of you learn a prayer when you were just a little kid? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul to keep very good. If I should die before I wake, I pray. Night, night, honey. Tim Hawkins does a hilarious thing. He sounds like a vampire, you know. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Night, night, honey. Close the light and leave, you know. The kid's like, no! You know what's interesting about that prayer? They actually taught that prayer to the kids during the plague because they didn't know if the child would be alive in the morning. You see, when we, when we understand a little bit more about prayers, it makes sense. Because they didn't know if their child was going to make it through another night. And, and so it was so important for them. And we've already looked at, at what a lot of people call the Lord's Prayer, what I call the Disciples' Prayer, where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. We looked at that several weeks ago. And I think it's important to learn from that. But there is a prayer. Jesus actually prayed 21 prayers that, that are listed in Scripture. There are other times it just says that he went off to a mountain by himself to pray. 21 prayers. 20 out of 21 times he began his prayer by saying, Father or Heavenly Father or My Father or Abba, which is the Aramaic word for Father, but it's, it's, a very, it's more like Papa. It's, it's like Dad. It's very... It's very warm, it's very genuine, it's very firsthand. 20 out of 21 times, Jesus begins his prayer like that. The only prayer that we know that Jesus prayed where he did not start out that way was the one from the cross where he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only prayer that does not start out with Father is when Jesus is dying and he asks God why his back has been turned on him. For the first time in all eternity, for all, the only time in eternity, the Father and the Son have some distance and Jesus cries out more than the agony of the physical death the, on the cross, where are you, Father? Where are you, God? But hours before going to the cross, he prayed a prayer in the upper room. He's given them what is often called the upper room discourse, uh, starting in John 14. After he's washed their feet, they've had the the Passover, the, the communion that we're going to have tonight. After he shared that with them, then he has this this teaching in John 14 through 16. And then in John 17, there is a prayer recorded, and it's recorded John was there, the others were there, and it meant so much that they put it down. And it's the longest prayer that Jesus prayed. Some people call it the high priestly prayer, but, but look at what it says in John 17, 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Later in the chapter, he says, I'm not just praying for you disciples. I'm praying for those who will come to me because of you. Jesus prayed for us in the upper room. 
before they went out, before he went to Gethsemane, while he was still there, he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for everyone who would ever come to know him by faith. He prayed for you and he prayed for me. He knew what was going to happen in Reading on March 3rd, 2013, and he prayed for us. And we learn a lot of things. We, we, and what I want to focus on today is just two things that we can learn from this prayer that will allow us to pray like Jesus. And, and I want to, to, to get to the bottom of where he was going and his heart in this, if we can. It's a long prayer, and I want to look at, at a good portion of it. And, and the first thing that I want to learn is pray that you will be fulfilled. And, and I didn't like that word, but I couldn't come up with a better word. Pray that, that the rest that you need to be, the, the, the part that is missing, what is lacking in your life, will be put there by Christ. And, and, and I guess fulfilled is a good word there, but, but it's, it's what is missing in your life that that will be replaced. Look at John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven. He looked up to the Father. Now, we always ask people to, to bow their heads and close their eyes. That's because we're so easily distracted. The Jewish posture for prayer was always to look up to heaven. The only reason that some people stopped doing that is that there is the story in the, the New Testament where the, the publican looks up to, to heaven and he's arrogant, and the other man bows himself in humility, and God says that he, that he hears that prayer. What is the right way to pray? Should I look up to heaven or should I bow my head? Yes. Just pray. Father, he's prayed. The time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. He's going to define eternal life. This is or how you can come to know it. This is eternal life that you may know that, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Don't skip over that. Jesus, as he's praying, says, oh, by the way, do you want to know how to bring glory? We just sang a, a song talking about that, that all the glory would go to God. There's still hope for me today, for the God of, of glory. And it says, I will stand up and give him glory with my life. He takes my darkness and he turns it into light. I will give him glory. How? Jesus shows us how. By, by completing the work you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Do you understand that? Jesus in eternal glory, Jesus, the, the Isaiah 6 picture of Jesus, that he's so immense and so incredible that the whole heavens are, are filled with who he is, his presence. He says, Father, let's restore that. Look at the next verse, verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And that now get this, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. I, I love that picture. There's just this oneness with Jesus and with the Father. You know, everything I have is yours. Everything that, that you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, through these ones that have been given to him. I will remain in the world no longer. 
but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect, uh, protect them by the power of your name. And the name of God, again, is always a picture of everything there is about him. The name of God depicts all of his characteristics, all of his attributes, all of his abilities, all of his intellect, all of his love. Protect them by all that you are, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas who has betrayed him already. Look at verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. Why? So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I want to stop there for just a minute. I want to stop there because I think there are three really exciting things that we get from this as we're finding out how to be fulfilled, how to have that empty part of us, that vacuum. One of the early church fathers said that there was a, a God-shaped vacuum in our life that only God f- uh, could fill. And, and there are others. Uh, Blaise Pascal took that, and he says God can, is the only one who can fill that, that God-shaped vacuum. But how do we do that? Number one, the way that we begin to fill that is to knowing Christ completes me. If you know Christ, that's where the vacuum begins to be filled. And Jesus defined eternal life not as joining a church, not as being a good person, not as being better than the guy down the block, not as uh, doing a list of commands. Jesus Christ defined eternal life as knowing the Father, just like the Father knew him, just like he knew the Father. I have people ask me, you know, we just had Lisa Harper a few weeks ago. Lisa Harper did a great job of speaking here. And somebody said, well, why were you comfortable having this woman come into the pulpit? Well, I'd heard about her. I knew that she was with uh, Women of Faith. I Actually, someone had given Kathy a, a book that Lisa Harper had written, so I read it one afternoon. And then I began to look at her credentials, and I began to, to read other things that she had written, some articles that she had. And I went on the Internet, and I began to research her so that by the time Lisa Harper walked here, I knew a lot about her. And truthfully, that's the way a lot of people know Jesus. They've heard some of the things that he said. They've read some of the things that he's written. They, they've done some research, and they've gotten on the Internet. They've talked to some friends, and they know a lot about him. But I'm here to tell you that I know Lisa Harper because I saw her come into the building. I listened to the way that she ministered to the women while she was here. She came, and, and she shook hands, and, and I said, it's okay to hug. And she says, well, I'm always really cautious about that. And we did the Christian hug, you know, where you kind of hug from the side. And then we laughed about it because then she kind of talked about three pats on the back and that whole business, how, how women pat and, and hug and all this other stuff. I met her. I know Lisa Harper. And one day I met Jesus Christ. I didn't just learn about him. I didn't just read about him. I met him. I've never hugged him, but I know him. Because he entered my life in such a way that I can talk to him. And the adventure of prayer will never be what it needs to be until you know Jesus. Nearly half of the New Testament is his story. It's told by four men who knew him well, who interacted with him, who had not just the stories but saw him, experienced him. 
And when we trust him, we come into that different kind of knowledge. We have the opportunity of knowing him. John, in John 10, when he's teaching the disciples, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When we know him, we follow him. When we know him, it changes us. And eternal life is a gift that's given to those who, who believe. Eternal life is, is coming to know who God is. Eternal life begins the minute that you know him. I, I, it drives me wild when I hear somebody say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, and one of these days when I get to heaven, it's like, no. Eternal life starts the moment you come into that, that relationship with God Almighty. Eternal life starts then, and you begin to walk with him day by day. There's a lot of things that we think will complete us. We talked about that, marriage, or a good job, or, uh, your health, your children's, your secure retirement. Is there such a thing anymore? Maybe you think a hobby is going to fulfill you. Maybe, maybe you think it's something else. They all fall short. Look at what Jeremiah wrote long before Jesus was here. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Paul in Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ. At the end of his life, as he's writing in the prison epistle, as he's in Rome and he's not that long away from being executed, he's still writing that, that the, one of the main characteristics of his life is he wants to know Christ day by day, living for him day by day in that knowledge. Pray that you will have that emptiness, that vacuum taken away by knowing Christ. Number two, by finishing Christ's task. When finishing Christ's task matures me. Again, I pointed out in verse 4, Jesus said, I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. When's the last time that you prayed that God would help you finish a task so that you could bring glory to God? When's the last time you prayed on a Monday? Not in church, but on a Monday, you prayed, God, give me a God-sized task for you so that when I complete it, it will bring you glory, not that I will look good. When's the last time that we had that kind of an adventure with God? My father taught me, my last name is Knight, N-I-T-E. My father was, was Ralph Archie Knight Sr. And Ralph Archie Knight Sr. taught me that if you are a knight, you didn't quit. When you're part of the family with the Knight family, if you started something, you finished it. And if you finished it, you did, you did it as well as you could. And, and it sounds like he was a tough guy. I'll never forget, I came home one time and I was doing pretty well in high school that particular semester and I was proud of my grades and I had uh, six A's and one A minus. And I said to dad, look at my grades. And he said, what's the A minus in? And I said, it's in physics. And he said, well, was that the top grade in the class? And I said, no, Shauna Craven got a, a little higher grade. She beat me on one of the tests. And he said, can I help you learn physics so you can beat her next time? And you think, wow, that's a tough dad. It wasn't like that. My dad was proud of his kids. And my dad knew that I had not given it my all that particular semester, and he was absolutely right. And the next semester and every other semester, I beat Shauna Craven in physics and the other classes I took with her. What God wants us to do is finish the task and give it our every ability. He doesn't ask us to do something we can't do, but he does ask us to do everything that we can do.
2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul at the end of his life. Would you love to have this? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wouldn't you love that to be your testimony at the end of your life? I, I did. I, I fought the fight for God. I, I finished the race he gave me. I, I've done everything I could possibly do. Well, let's look at it this way. Have you ever finished a product, a project? And you got done and you look back at that, maybe you remodeled a kitchen, maybe you did something else, maybe you had a, a work project that you did, maybe there was something else, maybe it was something you sewed, maybe it was something you cooked, and you look back at it and you, and you see that and you think, wow. Now, let me ask you this, if you're a parent, has your child ever done that? I was talking with Liz Bruno last night and she was talking to me about her son David. He's a, he's a little boy, about as old as I am. And she was talking about he got to, to speak at a, at a men's conference, a big men's conference here in town. And she was proud of David, and she was talking about what Dave Bruno had done. And, and she's a mom who's proud of your kids. Anybody identify with that when your child does something well? Uh, by the way, my son, John, is writing music, and he had Tim McGraw pick up one of his songs. It's called The Book of John, if you want to check it out. You know, you can do that. I'm proud of my son. He's an overnight success after 14 years in Nashville writing music. We do that, don't we? I wonder if the father ever looks down and he says, ah, oh, there's my son. There's my daughter. I gave him this project and look what they have done. That completes us. That fulfills us. That fills that void when we do those things that bring God glory. The third thing, experiencing Christ's joy empowers me. When we experience Christ's joy, he says, listen, I, I'm, I'm leaving, but, I, but before I do, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, verse 13, so that they may have the full measure of my joy. He didn't want us to have half the joy. We think as Christians that we have to look somber all the time. Listen, if you think you need to look somber all the time, look in the mirror one more time. God has a sense of humor. If you don't think that's true, look left or right today. Look at some of the weird people God brings together. And you say, oh, I just can look at you. Well, that, that works too. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And God does not expect us just to, to not have that full measure of Christ's joy. John 15, again, part of this upper room discourse says, if you, verse, uh, John 15, verses 10 and 11, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in, in his love. So it's all about his love. Oh, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We think that's incredibly difficult. But that's only because we're trying to manufacture our own joy. I had someone come to me not that long ago and say, we want to give our grandchildren the most joy possible, so we're taking them to Disney World. Oh, that sounds like a good thing. Anybody here ever been to Disney World? I'll raise my hand. I, I've known some people who shall remain nameless for their birthday wanted to go to Disneyland, Kathy. Uh, on her 50th birthday, she wanted to go to Disneyland. That's, and they wanted to do that. But if you think that the greatest joy in the world comes from Disneyland, let me give you an assignment. The next time you're down that way, you don't even have to go in there. Go to the exit and watch the moms and the kids come out from 6 to 7 p.m. with the exhausted children going, I don't want to go anywhere anymore. 
And you say, they're crying because they're leaving. No, they're crying just because they're exhausted. Is that the greatest joy you can find? No. God's joy does not drain us. It invigorates us. Nehemiah 8.10 says, This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me tell you the greatest joy I have seen. I have been literally in prison and talking with someone who knew all the guilt from being guilty, who knew all the unforgiveness because they shouldn't be forgiven, and knew that unless something something dramatic happened, they would never be able to walk out of those prison doors. And on that day that they gave Jesus Christ their life, on that day when they came to know Jesus Christ, it was like literally the weight was lifted off their shoulders, their physical presence, they straightened. And all of the scowl and the ugliness in their face dissipated and the joy lit up their face. Folks, you can't, you can't get that anywhere else. When you come to him and you know him and you experience his joy, it empowers you to do his work. And Jesus wanted us to know that. So we can pray that that vacuum is filled, that we can be fulfilled in Christ. There's one other thing that we can pray. We can pray that we will be dedicated to Christ. Again, it's not my favorite choice of words, but it's, uh, the word that's used is sanctified, and that just doesn't sound right because we don't use that word. It means to literally be set apart. It means to, to, to have a, a new level of dedication. Look at, uh, again, back to John 17. Look at starting with verse 14. We'll read to 23. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. Does the world hate us? Does the world hate Christians today? You better believe it. I think for a long time we have felt, not only in this country, but in the world, that Christians kind of have this extra status. Well, we have an extra status now. It's called persecuted. If I say certain things from this pulpit in California, I'm actually technically going against the law. But what I'm going to say is what's in the Bible. What I'm going to say is what God tells us to say. And you know what? If they think it's illegal, they'll just have to arrest me, won't they? Because we are hated. Look at the next verse. My prayer, and by the way, somebody says, Pastor, you're just paranoid. You're not paranoid if it's true. You're not paranoid if if people really do hate you. And they don't like what we stand for. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them. That's set them apart. That's the, the, the Greek word agios, or hagios, and that means to be set apart. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, or set myself apart, that they too may be truly set apart, sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. 
Pray that you'll be set apart, that you'll be dedicated, that you, you will be sanctified to Christ. How do we do that? Number one, let God's word protect you. Let God's word protect you. And you say, well, you know what, Pastor, maybe you're persecuted, but I'm not being persecuted right now. You know the biggest protection you need is from yourself. Is that not true? Every now and then I use power tools. And the biggest thing I have to remember is not to be stupid. Because usually you get hurt when you're, you're doing something with a power tool, and it's not usually something that someone else does to you. It's usually you not thinking about the fact that if you have your thumb across where you're going to run that, that saw blade, it's going to hurt a whole lot, and it's going to be really nasty looking. You have to, you know, and there were some men right now looking down at their fingers and looking at the bumps and bruises. We need protection, don't we? Jesus prays that we will be protected, that we will be set apart, that we will be sanctified. That we will be that, that word that is actually also used for holy. That you will be holy as he is holy. That we will be hagias, hagias as he is hagias. It, it's away from evil. It's away from the bad. It's away from those things that will cause us harm. And it's toward those things that are infinitely better. It, it, it's also used in the, in the concept of that which is clean. That which is sanitary. That which is sanctified. This morning for breakfast, I had my usual breakfast. I normally have a couple of scrambled eggs, an English muffin, uh, put a little Canadian bacon in the eggs. It's, you know, it's the low-calorie version of that. Uh, what I really want is four big slabs of bacon and fried eggs. But I do, you know, I do the, the modified version. And I had my normal. And I went to the trash, and I got a couple of eggs out of the trash. And the English muffins, you know, we normally keep those with the dog food. And I, and I got them out in the dog dish, and I, and I got my English. You say, no, you don't. What is wrong with you? No. We keep our food in the refrigerator. We keep our food up away from the dogs because if it is down, our dogs will eat it. That's for sure. We keep it separated. We keep it elevated. We keep it above the normal because we want to have things that will not make us sick. And the Lord says, God's word, when you infuse it in your life, is that which is elevated and kept separate to, to give you spiritual health. That's exactly what he says. We need to be inundated with his word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. It's need, it needs to dwell in us richly. It, it needs to be something that builds us up. It needs to be something that, that comes as part of what God gives us. And how do we do that? We pray that God will use his word when we read it, that it becomes alive in us. We pray that it becomes a spiritual scalpel to cut out the bad in us. God's word is, is like a, a two-edged sword dividing even the spirit and the soul, the dividing asunder. That's what Hebrews 4 talks about. It's a scalpel taking out those things that need to be taken out of our life. We have the wrong idea. I have the wrong idea about prayer because my idea of prayer is, God, let me force you into doing what I want you to do. And when we start inundating ourselves with God's word, we have a whole new vision of prayer. William Law said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. 
And when we begin to, to pray and ask God to make the word alive so that it protects us, so that it elevates us, so that it, it, it fulfills us, so that it, it sets us apart, so that it makes us the people that we are supposed to be, so that people look at us and they say, oh yeah, I know those guys. They go to that church and they serve an amazing God because it has changed the way they live. I want to pray like that. I want to be be set apart like that. I want to be protected like that. I want to be dedicated to him. And here's the last one. Let God's love compel you. Not only does his joy empower us, but God's love compels you. That's like somebody behind you kind of pushing you and shoving you. That's like someone just kind of nudging you and, and trying to get you to move just a little bit. And we are so hard to get to move. Because we have our feet planted and we have, man, this is the way we have always done it. Don't you tell me there's a different way. I'm going to push back against God. Not when his love gets involved. Jesus prays that as we become one, as he and the Father. Can you fathom that? From before the creation, they were of one mind. From before the creation, they enjoyed perfect love. From before the creation, there's never been a dispute or a disagreement. From before creation, from all of eternity, God has been one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've all, it's one person, three personalities. One person, the Trinity. God says he can love us just like he loves Jesus. Just hours later, after he prayed this, Jesus let the disciples He pulled back the veil just a little bit, just a little bit so they could glimpse what that meant. And he went to a garden called Gethsemane. Fred's already mentioned a a week from today, some uh, of the church members will be in Jerusalem. We're actually going to be first by the caves of En Gedi and have our service where David was running from Saul. And then later we'll have a depiction of Abraham's tent. And then later that day we're going to come to the Mount of Olives on the evening of, of Sunday a week from now. And we're going to look down on the Mount of Olives. And there at the base of the Mount of Olives you will see Gethsemane. And no farther from probably the bottom of this platform to the, the back of this auditorium from Gethsemane is the wall of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes out of the upper room later. And he comes with the disciples. And he says to the whole group, and Gethsemane is not what we think. We think of a garden like the gardens that we have here. It's actually an olive press place. That's what Gethsemane means, olive press. And, and he comes in the midst of these olive trees. And he says to nine of, uh, eight of the disciples that are left, Judas is gone, eight that are left, why don't you guys stay here? And he says, Peter, James, John, you come with me. And he comes a little further. He said, I need to pray. What's going to happen in the next few hours, I'm sure he was describing to them, what's going to happen in the next few hours is, is beyond comprehension. Just pray. You stay here. And then he went a little further, and he got down on his face. It says he bowed himself. Look at Mark 14. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him, the hour of the crucifixion, the hour of judgment. And look at what he says. It's very unusual. In Mark, an Aramaic word is inserted so we'll know for sure. He says, Abba. 
Everywhere else in the, in the New Testament, we know from the other, from the other Gospels, he says, Father, he, he says the Greek word pater, he, he says the word that we would expect. But before he says that, and, and I, we believe that Peter is the one who tells Mark this because some of the things that Mark includes could only come from Peter. And he, and he says, Peter says to Mark, when you write about this, you need to understand that he says, Papa, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's still one, and he knows there's no other way, but before he goes to the cross, one more time he says to the Father, if there is any other way, don't make me go to the cross. Don't let me go to the cross. Then he says, yet not what I will, but you will. And he willingly goes because he loves us. I usually end with an illustration. But let me tell you what, there is no illustration that can match that. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, humbled himself, lying on his, in his face in this garden with olive trees on either side of him, with all of the equipment for pressing the olive into olive oil, looking at the city who is going to take him and beat him to a bloody pulp, knowing what's going to happen just hours before it does. And at, at the, the height of his prayer, what he says is, Father, Papa, please. But he loved you. And he loved me so much that when he knew, and he'd known it from eternity past, he knew it before God created the world, he knew it before Adam and Eve were placed here, he knew that it was going to happen in eternity past, and he came to this point, this time, and he said, nevertheless, no matter, yet not what I will. There's a saying that says when people ask how much Jesus loved us, you can just stretch your arms out like he did on the cross. And they nailed him to the cross for you and for me. And you say, that's how much he loved us. When you begin to pray like that, that love compels you. That love pushes you off center. That love will never allow you to stand the same again. Let's pray. What an amazing God you are, Father. Abba. You're the one that loves us. You're the one who gave everything for us. You are the one who gives us joy and love and peace and grace. Not because we deserved it. In fact, you told us in Romans that while we were still shaking our fists in your face, you loved us. Father, we can't even begin to understand that. So take us on an adventure in prayer. May we live totally different from the way we've ever lived before. May we find a new truth as we read your word because it becomes alive to us, to elevate us, to set us apart, not because we're better, but because you saw something in us and loved us into something we could not become otherwise. 
And may your love compel us, drive us first to our knees, and then drive us out to live the life you've called us to live. Abba, Papa, how could you love us that much? How could you give us that much? May we never be the same. May we never, ever be the same because of your love. Thank you for allowing us to know you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.